Good morning. It's good to be here this morning. I was, uh, I often think about that thing of, of love, and we often, as congregations, as churches, probably all down through the centuries, have taught on love. And yet we still fight and bicker and argue and get marriage troubles and family troubles, and somehow we just don't get it, even with all the teaching that we get. The other thing I think about love in, in that opening, I really appreciated that, is, you know, it's proactive. You know, how, how many of us, how many wives, and maybe you wives can relate to this better than husbands, but, you know, the absence of conflict is not really love, right? It's not just that I don't hate you. You know, I told you I loved you 10 years ago, and that should, that should satisfy. That's, we know that's not right. So love is something that's proactive, it's active, it, it, it's, it shows itself, and it's, it's constantly, uh, I really appreciated that, uh, brother, about the, the idea of just challenging one another. You know, just, am, am I a loving person? And, uh, of course, then, what is the reaction when they say, no, you're not? You know, those are those would be good things to think about. So, yes, uh, I will uh, just kind of tell you a little bit of of the message this morning. We talked. I don't know. It's been a couple of years ago now in in our little group of churches that maybe we need to get together. Uh, I think the the agreement was that we would get in each other's or the ministry would get in each other's meeting houses at least once a year, and and we talked about it and we said, well, you know, we. Sh- you know, if we make it easy, you know, you know, maybe you don't have to create some big, big message so that, uh, you know, it makes a big job out of it. We can just easily get in our vehicles and, and go. And uh, suggested that maybe even just preach a message you preached, you know, the Sunday before and, you know, be fresh on your minds and, and take the burden out of it to some extent. I've been preaching through First Thessalonians, which, by the way, I really, I really like going through a book. Because you find yourself preaching something you probably wouldn't normally preach, which I've got to the fourth chapter, and the fourth chapter is where I'm at, and it has to do with moral purity, the essential sins, and I don't know that I ever would have preached a message on that, except that I came to it, and here it is, and I'm in First Thessalonians, and I'm here, and let's preach on it. So I did, end up being two messages, and I thought, well, I'll just bring that today. And then I decided that somehow God just didn't give me the freedom to do that. So I will take you to 1 Thessalonians, but I will go back a ways uh, to, the first, to the first chapter, and that seemed like God gave me the freedom to preach this. And the title of the message will be, The Effects of, the effects of Having Received the Word. Having Received the Word. So the, and that is taken out of the sixth verse, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, and it goes on. So before I get started, maybe we'll just go ahead and and give you a little rundown. First, the Thessalonians is an interesting book. It is apparently the first letter that Apostle Paul wrote, best I can tell. It was written soon after Acts 17, the, you know, the, the Philippian jailer 
uh, horrible. You know, he, was, he had been whipped. He'd been put his feet in the stocks. He'd been sent out of Philippi. And he lands in Thessalonica, bruised and bleeding and bloody. Uh, he would have been a mess when he got there. But somehow, despite his appearance, despite the pain, despite the, and we're going to see that here as we go on, the effects of receiving the word, one of them is in affliction. And they heard Apostle Paul, despite the fact it wasn't a health and wealth gospel that Apostle Paul preached. He was preaching something painful, something difficult. There's a cross in it. And if you don't believe it, look at my back. And that was the Apostle Paul. So the Thessalonians are a marvelous people. We're going to see here in a little while that, that, they were, they, that the word of God went from them. They were very excited about the word of God, despite the fact that uh, they received it in affliction. So, I would just read that as we go to, uh, I'm going to start out the fifth verse, and I'm going to read through the ninth verse, and then we'll pray. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, this is a powerful, by the way, this, third, this fifth chapter, fifth verse, first chapter is an amazing verse. Uh, I think I took four sermons on this one verse. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. And that just, you know, just point out here in light of the message we're going to be preaching here, that they were among the Thessalonians in a certain way. And the, the second and third chapter is a description of that. They were meek. They were loving. They, they had hearts of affection. They were desirous of the Thessalonians. They were, they were people who, who lived honestly and spoke the truth and did not use the word of God deceitfully amongst the Thessalonians. And he appeals to that. You know what kind of life we lived while we were there. And by the way, it doesn't seem like it was all that long. It looks like Apostle Paul, if you do a little study on this, might have only been there three to four weeks unless we're missing something in there. But a huge impact in a very short amount of time. What manner of men we were among you for your sake, sixth verse, and this is where the meat begins. For this message, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word. Title of the message, received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that... Ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sound out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's at least five effects. I will be speaking about five different effects, and there's actually more in there, but I only have an hour. Well, first of all, they became followers, followers there, sixth verse, followers of us and of the Lord. I would like you to notice the us in there. That is an interesting thing. We're used to the idea of following the Lord, but he adds in there the concept of following us. What's that word follow mean? You know, I... I, when I preached this message the first time, just the Sunday before, Chris had said, you know, I don't like the idea of imitators. 
The idea of imitation sounds so fake, so without imagination. It don't, it don't sound real. It sounds like, you know, like, like fake sugar or something. You know, it's not real. But that's actually this word followers is imitates or, or uh, uh, mimetates. There's different uh, uh, Greek there. It has to do with imitating. Miming is to follow, to follow us and follow the Lord is to imitate, to act like he did. But it has discipleship in it. You know, it's not just uh, as I stand here and teach and you take what, home what, what I teach. That's a good thing. But, you know, the, the rabbis, when they taught, they said, come along and live life with me. And that's what Paul said. Come along. You know, you followed me. You followed my life and, and my, the direction, how I walk, how I talk, how I interact with people, how I do business. You, you became imitators of how I follow Christ. As, of course, we, we know that he said in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Be ye followers of me, even as I follow Christ. In Titus 2.7, Paul exhorts Titus to become a pattern, to become a pattern of good works, become a pattern of how to follow Jesus. So the idea that we follow men comes up here more than once, and you will find that, and we're going to uh, delve into this just a little bit more. You, in the 14th verse of the second chapter, in my Bible, it's all just right here in front. It all lays out here. But right across the page, you'll see that the 14th chapter, uh, second chapter, 14th verse, for ye, brethren, became followers of the churches. See that? Followers of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. In the fourth chapter, first verse, once again, right in front of me, Ye received of us how ye ought to walk and please God. The idea of following men, and I, I, hope, I, I hope I don't shock you, but I'm going to talk about that subject for just a little bit, and I, and I won't drop you. We will talk about Jesus Christ, and we will we'll, we'll try to be balanced. There won't be, no, no message is completely balanced. But the idea of following God includes following men who follow God, and churches that follow God. Followers of the churches of God. I see in this, in this, I hope you have your Bible open, you're seeing this, and I'm not just making this up. So I was thinking about this uh, message, and I thought, well, could I just go through and just do a life of the Apostle Paul? They became followers of us. Of course, Paul wasn't alone. Likely, uh, Timothy or Titus was there, possibly, uh, uh, oh, uh, there was another man that's not coming to me. But he wasn't alone. He was following, you know, that Paul was not exampling the body of Christ alone. He was exampling the body of Christ with people who were part of the body of Christ. We, it's, it's, uh, it's awful hard to say you're the church when you're one person. But it, if you're two or more, then you can start to be more of a picture of truth of Jesus Christ. So as I was thinking about it, what, how, do we have people we can look up to in our lives? So followers of Christ. But first, let's pray. Lord, we just want to stop a moment and just ask that you bless this message. Lord, we give you the, the full glory, the full honor knowing that we don't follow men, but we do follow men who follow Christ, and we follow men as they 
follow Christ. And so, Lord, we, we ask, O oh God, that this would be a very Christ-centered message and that the Holy Spirit would be here in our midst, calm hearts, settle minds, open ears. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I was thinking about good examples, and we all have them, but I thought about, you know, great Christians. You know, one, of the, one that came to my mind was R.J. Letourneau. R.J. Letourneau, of course, was the man that he's famous for saying, I shovel out the money, and God shovels it back, but he has a bigger shovel. You probably heard, you know, he was a man with 300 patents, and he was very much an outspoken businessman for God. If you ever read his biography, that's usually what it says, you know, businessman for God or something like that. And so, you know, he was a man that, that ran his business on Christian principles. I think he gave 90% of his income away. He was a man of, of, of some, some example for us. Well, he's not Jesus, and I don't know much else about his life other than some of those things. But maybe there's a little glimpse of, a, of, of, a, of someone we can follow, some example. You know, we don't want to maybe take all of our J. Letourneau's life and follow that. But maybe there's one little thing that we could follow. I think about C.T. Studd. You know, he's the one that said only one life will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. He was a man that was in China. And he was a hard-driven man. He slept as little as possible. He ate as little as possible. He worked as much as possible for the Lord. And everyone around him was required to do the same. He was a hard-driving man for God. He wrote and he preached and... And all the way up, and you know, the doctor said you need to quit, and he didn't. He just kept on, he preached all the way till he basically keeled over. He was a man of, of extreme discipline, hard-working man for Christ. Those are, you know, that's, a, that's an example. Some, some have said that he was not easy to get along with. You know, that hard-drivingness didn't make him a real people person, necessarily. But he was very effective. So once again... Maybe there's a little aspects of people's lives that we can follow. George Mueller, man of prayer, a man of faith, a man of dedication to God. Maybe we can learn something from people like that. I was thinking about McShane and Elliot and Brainerd. They were all men who died young for Christ. Died very young. Gave their hearts to God early and burned out for God. And uh, Peyton and Williams that went to the South Sea Islands. I'll be talking about them a little bit more. They were amazing men, giving themselves in extreme danger and hardship. But what about ordinary folks? You know, I was talking to a man about a biography I'd been reading one time, and, and uh, he said, I don't read Christian biographies. I said, well, why not? He said, I just, I, they're, you know, they're, they're just too intimidating. Uh, you know, all these men, they're, they're great men, and, and I just don't read them. You know, if they got something wrote about them in a book somewhere... They're way above my head, and all it does is just makes me all discouraged and down. So, well, so maybe we need to talk about ordinary examples. You know, I thought about my, my dad. My dad was, uh, you know, I wouldn't want to follow him in all ways, but, you know, every morning that I can remember, I mean, I'm sure there was exceptions. He would be up early in the morning, sitting at the kitchen table with his Bible in his hand. They were actually kind of laid out on the table. And that's the way I remember my dad. That's a picture I have of my dad over and over again. Bible in front of him, reading in the mornings. That's an example. Another example from my dad. He was one that believed in family devotions. I grew up with the Bible. Very, very much a part of my life. 
uh, twice a day, typically breakfast and supper, probably at least four days a week. So in pretty much five or six days a week, it would be at least one of those times. We had family devotions. We read the Bible and we discussed it practically pretty much, you know, I'd say eight times a week, very faithfully. Little examples. You know, we have, a, we have brothers in our congregation who are highly disciplined. You know, men who, who do what needs to be done when it needs to be done. You know, men who get up in the morning, who, who, who order their lives. You know, surely you've got brothers in your congregation like that. You just, that you can look up to their example of solid dependability. Those, those in our congregation who have moved temptation as far away, you know, especially in the areas of technology. They just don't want it in their lives. They've just moved that part of it, and they don't have to deal with that. I admire those people. There's good fathers, uh, good godly families in our congregation, very much so. And I really appreciate their godly examples. We can learn from that. We can learn from, well, how do they do it? How do they, how do they live their life? We can learn things from, you know, we're becoming followers of us and of the Lord. And received of us, how you ought to walk and to talk, followers of the churches of God. We're talking about earthly examples of following Christ. Something we can look at and see. I was, uh, when I was growing up, there was a family that was very close to, to me and my, and my parents. And they were talkative people. They were, they were very busy people. They wrote letters, had a lot of contact. And my mother, one day, she said about the wife and the family, she says, you know, I've never heard her ever say a bad word about somebody. She never gossips. You know, that's, that's kind of stood out to me. You know, for somebody as active as they were in social life, and as, and as much as my parents knew this couple, they could say that. I've never heard gossip or a bad word about somebody. I was around a man for uh, off and on over the years that whenever I was with him, he was always interested in me. And whenever I saw him talking to other people, his conversation was always about the other person. He was just a lover. He was a person always interested. How's your wife? You know, how, how's your husband? And, you know, well, that last conversation we had, is that, is that all cleared up in your life? You know, just he was always interested in other people. Those are examples we can look to for, for how to follow Christ. And we have brothers in our congregation, better than I am, who are really good at when they meet somebody at a gas station, one of their customers or whatever, they tell them about Jesus. They, they, they open up a conversation about the Lord. You know, that's, that's something I wish I was better at. And, I, you know, just seeing that kind of just provokes me to emulation. You know, just a sense of, I'd like to do a little better at that. We have good mothers in our congregation uh, that I, I think are... are Good example, older mothers, you know, the younger mothers can look to them and say, well, how do they do it? And we can learn from those examples. I was going through a hard time in my life, and I was uh, struggling with some things, trying to find my way in life, and a good friend of mine, a person who I, I appreciated, and he, I think he appreciated me, and, and I was just trying to find my way, and he was sitting across, across from me one day, and he says, Clinton, is there anyone in your life that you look up to and would, you know, you could just ask their counsel, you could just kind of follow their direction in life? And I said, no, I don't think there is. This was a bad time in my life. 
And he said, well, I think that would really help you. If you could just have enough respect for, for other people. You know, as I've, I've definitely repented of that, and I definitely, you know, I think about all kinds of people that I have respect for. You know, even in, in our congregation, I just have found people that, you know, it's not like someone I could follow in every area of life, but there's many times there's a specific area. I can find areas in life to, to ask their counsel, to follow their example, and and I have found that when people set themselves above the herd, you know, they don't, you know, to esteem others better than yourself. Isn't that probably one of the high, highest and hardest of all the commands? But when we put ourselves above the herd, we think we're somehow, we're kind of, we kind of have this, this sense that we're better than everyone else. Every time I get around someone who is there, there are usually some significant sin and relationship problems in their life. So we need to be in that place where we actually are able to follow others as they follow Christ. That's an important principle that we need to uphold. If you have your Bible open there, I just alluded to the 14th verse. I want you to see the 13th verse. The 13th verse of the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, notice that, ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And we'll talk about that effectual working later. I'd just like you to notice that they received the word of God as the word of God, though it was spoken by men. Catch that. It was men spoke it, but it received as the word of God. You know, I think uh, one of the things that, that I have noticed is now and then in our lives when there's authorities, you know, maybe it's easier to speak about a, you know, a 16-year-old who maybe is struggling with his dad. When dad speaks... That is because God has placed that father in this son's life. That authority is now from God. And in one sense, we are to receive, when we're in that place, we are to receive that word from our father, from, a, from in the Lord fathers, by the way, you know, to, to honor those in the Lord. The in the Lord fathers are, they are speaking with the authority of God, and it needs to be heard in that way. And sometimes we find ourselves in a place where our, the church speaks or an elder speaks in our life. And we need to say, well, that's the authority God has placed in my life. So there's a place for just receiving the word of God, even though it's from men, as if from God. So let's go back down to the 14th verse. And I want to notice here the followers of the churches of God. And then also in 4.1. Received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. So we have the three verses there right in front of us, in, in my Bible anyway. And I would like to maybe focus here on the on the. Followers of the churches of God for just a moment. In Hebrews 13, 7, it says this. You, you know it well. 
You could turn to it, but I think you know it. Remember them which have the rule over you, have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow. Are we comfortable with that phrase? Are we comfortable with the idea that there is those who speak the word of God and we are to, to give honor to them, to remember them, considering the end of their conversation, to their faith follow. That's a foundation. The idea that there are men who we are to remember them, to give honor to them, to maybe even obey them that's a, that, in that same chapter because they have a faith that we can follow. And it's just making us uncomfortable. The idea there's, that, that the Bible speaks to the idea of following men at some level. And I, hope, and I hope I get this all balanced out before this is over. But the Bible is very clear on this subject. And I would like to just put this in here in 1 Timothy 3.15. But if I tarry long, Apostle Paul speaking to Timothy, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now here's an interesting verse, probably one of the more interesting verses in the Bible. One of them, there's many of them. It says here that the, the church is the, a pillar and a ground of truth. What does that mean? The idea that you know, we are to look for truth somewhere. Well, we've been talking about people, now I'd like to speak about being followers of the churches of God. You know, David Berceau had a concept in one of his books that stuck with me for a lot of years. He talked about the course of performance. And he spoke about the course of performance of the early church, of churches that have stood the test of time. So now and then in our lives, there's churches out there who have for generations passed on the faith. For generations have, have raised up godly families. For generations have held to sound doctrine and truth. For generations. And they're still doing it. And David Rousseau came, uh, presented the idea that there should be a certain weight given to those churches. The idea that we want to be a part of those churches. Not, you know, if we think that somehow... We can do it different than those churches and somehow end up with the same result as those churches. We're probably fooling ourselves. Does that make sense? You're following that idea. The idea that, and we would pass that on. I'll probably talk about this in a different context here in just a moment. The same is true for young people. You know, we, I often tell my young people, you know, there are godly, and I hope you have them here. I know you do, actually. Godly Families in your in your congregation where where there's just been a, just a long history of just walking with the Lord. The children are following along. There's the, it's following along well. We can look to those men and those women for some example of how to follow the Lord. So the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is not the inventor of truth. Not the creator of truth. I know. I think sometimes we've been in reaction. Some of us that came out of plain churches have been in reaction because it felt like the church created this basket of laws or this basket of sins to not commit and this this these this twelve step program and just stay inside this program and everything is fine. That's not 
what the scripture is speaking. The scripture is saying that it's the pillar on the ground of the truth. In other words, a pillar was placed in the center of towns as a place to, to hang, you know, that would be a place where notices would be put. So it was a kind of a, it was a place of proclamation. A pillar was often, in Revelation, is we are made a pillar in the temple of our God. We have become, we become uh, proclaimers of truth. We are a place where somebody wants to know what truth is. They want to know how to live. They want to know how to please God. They come to the church to find that out. We are the, we are the place. A good candlestick church is a church where someone said, you know, I'm in a bad place. I need some help. I wonder what the church has to say. And they should be able to come to our congregations and find that out. We're the, we're the place, the pillar and the ground of truth. So as I was thinking about this, discipleship. You know, we often talk of discipleship as something that you know, we, we would tell someone, you know, to you know, put off these sins, you know, read the Bible this many chapters a day, you know, pray fast, go to church, witness for God. These would be things we would, when we talk about discipleship, we're, we're trying to walk someone along in the Christian faith. I would like to challenge us for just a moment. As I think about this, this subject, in our settings, one of the things we have in our churches is we have no divorce. I'm just going to use this as an example. Is it because we've done a better job of teaching marriage? We have lots of marriage seminars. Everybody just has these wonderful marriages, and we've just got marriage figured out, and we've taught it and taught it, and now we just have better marriages than everyone else, and that's the reason why we don't have divorce. I would challenge that. I don't think that's true at all. Actually, what we've done is we have just simply said that we're the church, we're Christians, the Bible is true, and this is what it looks like to be a Christian. We don't do divorce. And we just don't do it, you know, because... Because that is the church. And so, in one sense, the church is made up of those who have the Bible, those who have the Holy Spirit, and those who have decided to be obedient to it. And then we, say, we, we can look around and we can say, you want to know how to live life? You want to know how to walk with the Lord? You want to have a good marriage? How to be humble? How to dress? How to handle technology? How to handle, you know, an example of that is... Uh, when I was growing up, I was always taught, you know, my background was German Baptist, and the Church of the Brethren was kind of the, the bogeyman in my world. They had basically given up. They, you know, now they have, you know, sodomites in the pulpit, and divorce and remarriage has been around for a long time. They're very, very, very liberal. Back in the First World War, they decided that they just were not going to make it normative how to practice non-resistance. A very large percentage of them, in some more way or another, were non-resistant. They didn't, they didn't go into war. By the Second World War, a big chunk of them went in as non-combatants. By the time the Vietnam rolled around, the Vietnam War rolled around, it was only like 20% were, in any sense, non-resistant. Because they did not say, this is what it looks like to be a Christian. This is the measuring. This is the, you know, where the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. We, are, we have decided together as brothers, this is what it looks like to practice loving our enemies. And so by the time now, I think you would find a very small percentage of them that we even claim 
to be non-resistant. And it was because the church did not long ago decided, we are not going to tell you how to practice the teachings of Jesus. We're not going to make a norm, a normal, not going to set a standard. The same thing happened with divorce and remarriage. <clears throat> and the same thing happened with dress. Very interesting. This would have been about 1920 or so, somewhere in there. They realized that the dress standards were falling apart. And so they set up a committee. I'm picking on them because it's something I know something about. I'm not, I'm the, I have a, you know, there's actually a lot of Church of Brethren people that are still walking with the Lord. I believe that. But just an example, I'm just trying to make the point here that the church has the right and the obligation to say this is the kingdom of God. You know, come and see. This is how we disciple people. We disciple people by being the church of God. You know, you, you know you're young people, how do, I, how do I live this life? Well, look around. This is the church. So they wrote up a paper, the church brethren did, and, and wrote up a beautiful defense of modest, plain dress. And it was probably one of the best worded couple paragraphs you'll ever read about the necessity, the importance, and the value, and the beauty of living simply and dressing modestly. But they never said that that's the norm. This is the way it needs to be. This is, this, it was not a definition, it was just an advice. And I guess you could go and just go anywhere where the church of brethren, you can see where that all went. Because they didn't decide, somewhere they didn't decide that this is the way it needs to be. So what is the pillar and the ground of the truth? An example, another example of that is, is uh, I was talking to one of the deacons in the church I was in, and he was sort of complaining. He said, you know, we're so careful to obey Jesus' teachings about not letting our right hand know what our left hand is doing. I think a lot of people don't realize the, the necessity of giving. You know, we're, we, need to, we need to be kind of, we don't need to be bragging about how much money I gave, but we need to kind of be talking about it enough to know that it's normal to be giving. The, the idea that the church gives, Christians give, it is normal to give. This is the standard is that we uphold this idea. You know, so you don't have to say how much you gave or whatever, but, you know, it comes up in the conversation. You say, well, I give, I give to Cam, or, I, you know, I, I give 10% of my income. You know, you, we can talk about these things. In my background, zilch, none, zero. It just wasn't talked about. And the deacon was a little concerned that because it wasn't held up as a norm, that people weren't giving. I think it was true. I think a lot of people didn't, didn't give, partly because they just weren't given any teaching. John D. talked about this subject at our, he was just there at our congregation, and, he, and he, you probably heard this before from him. He talks about this school, and he talks about how God is the teacher, the angel of the students, the church is the object lesson, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. I just love that. And of course, it's taken there out of Ephesians 3.10, and you can go there sometime if you want to. But, it's, but to the angels and principalities is known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. It's a beautiful thing. The idea that even the angels are figuring out how God works by looking at the church. You follow that? It's a beautiful thing. And we need to, we need to take that seriously. If we're going to, become, if we're going to be the church that, that the Thessalonican church can look to and say they become followers of the church at Zion. Because... They looked there and they said, well, that must be what Christianity looks like. Let's go with what happens there. It's a starting point. 
There was an interesting uh, situation there in the Durham Baptist. We just went there to, for church recently because we visited family, and there's a man named Dan Long there. He preached a message there. He's an old white bearded old elder now. And he, he grew up in the inner city of one of the big cities, and I don't remember which one it was anymore. It was maybe Dayton, or I think it was in Ohio. And pretty sure it was in Ohio. And he was a young fellow there, in the, in, and his family he grew up in was just a mess. It was rotten. It was, it was, I don't think he even hardly had a dad in his life. And he would get off the school bus and go to the house. A lot of times the door would be locked, and he couldn't get in. He was just a young fellow. And he would sit there on the porch waiting on mom to get home, let him in the house. And there was two, uh, two old maid German Baptist sisters just the next door. And they would see him, and they would bring cookies and milk over. If it got late, they would just bring him in. And they just loved him and cared for him during these years that he lived in this big city. And uh, washed over him and, and uh, somehow followed through his life a little bit. Well, of course, he was in a rotten part of town, in a rotten family. He ended up in, uh, him and his wife ended up in, I don't know what stage they got married, motorcycle gangs and all kinds of drugs and, and the whole nine yards. They just got out into, into the world. Got in a very bad place in his life. Him and his wife realized they needed help, they needed somewhere to go. And he remembered, he remembered these two old sisters there that... They were German Baptists, he knew that, and so he set out to find them. And of course, the interesting thing was, he, he found them, ended up joining the church, and there's a very interesting, of course, he was eventually ordained a preacher, and he's been, a, been preaching a long time. He's actually quite an interesting, interesting speaker, an amazing person. But that was, you know, he was looking for answers, and he went to the church and found them. And that's the point I want to make. You know, we just... If they would have said, well, you know, you just might have to find your own way somehow. You know, well, you know, this is the Bible. Here, get, here's a Bible, and maybe you can just find your answers here. Well, God bless you. I, I mean, we do need to find our answers in the Bible. But he went to the church to find out how to get his life put back together again. So those are, those are the type of things that I think we can, we can look to and, and consider when it comes to these subjects. When I was uh, I first came out of German Baptist and came to our circles, one of the things I was very concerned about, and still am somewhat, is how do I... The, the big thing was music. Technology was just barely getting started. I mean, there was little flip phones with, tech, with you know, a lot of texting going on, and there was a certain age group that you know, was always flipping their phone out and doing the T9 stuff with their little flip phones. I was very concerned about all that. How do I, how do I deal with it? And one of the things I told my children was, and I came up with, I think I just sat down, and there was five families in our congregation that were doing well. You know, they had their children in order. They'd been with the Lord a long time. There was, you know, a, a faithful testimony in town about them. They, their lives showed forth good fruits. And there was, there was good, solid order in the homes. And I just told them, I named them off. I won't name them here. I said, no. When it came to music and dress and technology, I said, now you look around. These were all older men with older families. I said, you know, if you can imagine them listening to that music or, or that sister wearing that dress or that brother wearing that shirt or treating technology in that way, 
then it's probably okay. You might still need to talk to dad about it. But you know, if you can imagine them dressing in that way. And that's a biblical concept. John D. challenged us. He said, he said, you know, a lot of people just love diversity. You know, our church has all this diversity. We still love each other. That's kind of a held up as like a standard. Diversity is good. Diversity is wonderful. We can have diversity and still love each other. It's, it's held up how wonderful it is. And John D. challenged us last week, the week before. He said, what is the biblical? What, what does God hold up? Does he hold up diversity or does he hold up unity? And so I would like to challenge us. Does God hold up following our peers or following elders? Is that an easy answer? We are to look up to and follow after godly men with godly examples. So following men and churches is an important principle of the scripture. The church is the place where truth can be found. John Patton, I thought I mentioned him, John Payton, I'm not sure how he's pronounced. It's a single T. The South Sea Islands, he was on the island of Tana. And it was a terrible place to be. There was wife killing, baby killing, uh, rape, murder of all kinds, theft was constant. And the way men treated wives was terrible. John had, a, had an assistant and a couple of converted people he brought with him to the island of Tana. He couldn't figure out how is he going to teach these people how to treat their wives. It was just, it was just terrible. And one of the, the more obvious ways is that when they went out and gathered firewood, the man would come stomping along with his spear in his hand, because they had to defend themselves all the time. They were always killing each other. And they would get the wife to the pile of the wood, and he'd just pile her high, you know, just pile the wood on high, and then, and then they'd tromp back, and the wife carrying the load, and, and the the man walking along just, you know, straight with a spear in the hand. And so he decided just to make a point of He'd go in the most public places possible, and he'd take two or three of his assistants with him, and he would do just exactly the opposite. He would, he would load the men up, and he would carry the big load, and the, and the wife would walk alongside. And, and he would make a point of it. He'd say, see how we're doing. The reason why we do it this way is because it's God's order. Men are stronger. Men are bigger. Men can carry things. Women, they're weaker, they're smaller, they're not made to carry things like this. And, he, and this is how Christians love their wife. And so he, would, he, fe, he, said, he ended up saying about that, he said it was the most effective teaching tool he ever did, just exampling it, just being a good example. And now, oh, that's what it means. Then, of course, then the, he taught him to call God Jehovah. That's how to follow Jehovah. So... How do we do that? So if the church is sending an uncertain sound, we have all, you know, part of us is doing one thing and part of us is doing another. Maybe our young people's looking, well, you know, brother so-and-so does it, you know, and well, but yeah, but he's not really quite what we want here. If there is disunity in what the church is saying, that's what, that's what uh, the Peyton found out is that as long as the Christians in the island were treating their wives in a certain way, then it sent the signal. This is how you treat your wife. But if, if it had been true, of course it wasn't, but if it had been that one of them was calling himself a Christian and he made his wife carry the load, what message would that have given? So unity is a part 
of our ability to disciple one another and disciple our children to, you know, to, to bring, you know, when someone comes into our congregation and, and they, they're new to the faith, maybe just barely caught on to, to the truths of the gospel, and here they are, and they're trying to figure out the Christian life. And guess what? They're looking at us. They're looking at the church. Because they've got the Bible in their hand. I remember a man one time, he said, uh, he was telling me how that he, had, he was a Bible reader and, he, and quite knowledgeable actually. And he went over five times, he saw in the New Testament, it says, salute one another with a holy kiss. He had no idea. He didn't even, hardly even crossed his mind to even know what to do with the verse. He didn't study the verse. He had never seen it done until he met his first Anabaptist and went to an Anabaptist church. It's like, oh, that's in the Bible, isn't it? So the church is part of the way God teaches the Bible. Because the Holy Spirit's teaching the church. It's the, the, the church is reading the Bible. And it's challenging one another at brothers' meetings. And it's talking about things. And, and we're provoking one another to emulation and to good works. And now, now, we, now somebody walks in and says, oh, Well, I guess so. You know, Ron Hansen often says, you know, until he met the Anabaptists, the whole idea of non-resistance was just something that he, kind of, he knew what the Bible said, love your enemies, you do good to them that hate you, despite for you. He, he read those scriptures, but until he met the church, he didn't know what it meant. Does that make sense? Is that, is that, is that unspiritual? Now, you know, Ron Hansen was a, was a sincere, I mean, do you know Ron Hansen? I mean, he's a man that, I mean, if it's right, he's going to do it. But he had to see the church practicing before he knew what the Bible meant. So it's important, you know, that's the reason why the Bible says, in Ephesians 4, endeavoring, endeavoring, try hard. It's hard work. It's hard work to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's an important thing, but it takes effort. And the reason why we should do it, and the reason why we need to make effort at it, is because it's part of our testimony to the world. It's part of it. Jesus said it this way, that they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So our unity and our love one for another, our, our committed togethering in how we live out the word of God is a testimony to the world and takes away the confusion. That was point number one. Point number two. Point number two. Do you normally go an hour here? It looks like, a, look, looks like I got an early start for our congregation. I'm lucky to get to 11.07, according to my watch. And I usually don't even get the chance to stand up till about this time. All right. That was point number one. Followers, followers of godly men. Those who have received the word. So those that have received the word follow godly men and godly churches as they follow Christ. That's point number one. Point number two. The effects of receiving the word is that we in faith and hope, in faith and hope, we receive the word even in affliction. Even in affliction. And that's an interesting point. If you look there in the third verse of the first chapter, you'll find the patience of hope. The patience of hope. Patience that's endurance. We endure because we have hope. If we have hope of eternal life, if we have hope that there's something in the end, we can take it. We can stand it. You know, 
Because this life is not all there is, we're not so terribly worried when things go wrong in this one. So Apostle Paul, as I've said already, comes into to Thessalonica with a bloody back. He comes into Thessalonica afflicted. He comes into Thessalonica with no promise that everything is going to be okay. There's going to be suffering. And the Thessalonians took up that the, the gospel, despite that. You know, when someone, you know, in, a, in, a, in wartime, you know, if they, you know, like a Doolittle raid, you know, the time they went into Japan after Pearl Harbor with their, probably you've heard of that, that story. You know, they took volunteers only because pretty likely you'll die. You know, we're not drafting you. You're volunteering. Chances are you're going to die. Now, that's a whole different level than I have to. You know, so that's what the Apostle Paul was doing. Is he, was, he, he said, you might suffer. In fact, you likely will suffer. And yet they came to the Lord anyway. They received the word despite the promise of suffering. Back in about 300 A.D., Marcus Aulus, if I'm pronouncing that right, was emperor of Rome. And for whatever reason, he would have been kind of the last emperor that persecuted Christians. Constantine came in soon thereafter. He hated the Christians. And somehow or another, he had 40 men captured. 40 men. And he wanted to make an example of them. He hated Christians, and he hated these 40 men. And he wanted them to die. He didn't want them to just die. He wanted them to die a miserable death. He spent a little time coming up with an idea, and his idea was, it was wintertime, his idea was that he would strip them naked and put them out on the ice, out on, a, out on a lake, and they would just freeze to death out there on the lake. Of course, these 40 men were Christians, and he just gave them a simple, it's just binary, you know, just, it was on or off. There was a, a temple, I think it was to him, I forget, I didn't read that just real recently. And, you know, they, there's the ice, you're going to be out on the ice, and if you don't want to die, you just go up there to that temple and you bow down. It was very, you know, sometimes we don't get a choice quite that simple. It was either serve Christ or serve an idol. Well, those 40 men were stripped down, on, and they went out onto the ice, and they stood in a huddle, and they sang, and the hours went by. Somewhere a few hours later, one of the men made a groan and a cry, and he headed up the hill to that idol temple. Marcus Aurelius was sitting there, or standing there with his captain of the guard, and he gloated. Ha! We'll see how, you know, we'll get down to 38, and pretty soon they're all going to start running, pretty soon. He was happy. But that captain of the guard knew these men, and he had heard at least some of the gospel. He had never made a commitment to Christ. And he looked at that 40th man running up that hill. And he said, let there be 40. And he stripped off his clothes and went out onto the ice. And the next morning, there was 40 bodies frozen on that lake. In affliction. Knowing, you know, we might suffer for Christ. We might. Not, it's been a long time in this country. 
But when Apostle Paul came to Thessalonica, he had evidence on his back. Suffering is part of this. When that man went out on that ice, that captain of the guard went on the ice, he knew. Death was just the way it is. You know, that man, I done a little reading on that man. It's just in the Martyr's Mirror, and there's another account. As far as we know, he was never baptized. As far as we know, he never sat in a church service and sang a song. We don't know whether he heard a sermon, took communion. Pretty sure he didn't take communion, but we don't know if he ever heard a sermon. But we know that he made, he was baptized in blood. He was baptized with his life. So we're willing, I believe, we're willing to do that. You know, we, I was able to tell that story without crying. I choked up a little. You know, we, we would like to be. We would like to stand in that way, wouldn't we? You know, to, to die for Christ, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be good? But I would like to challenge us. You know, we may not die. You know, the, 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 we're, we're Americans, and so we're kind of used to being both prosperous and a Christian. What if you were in China? You had a good business, and you gave your heart to Christ, and now you can't. Now you have to be a garbage collector. You have to be a ditch digger. You know, you have to do something menial and, and dirty, a sweet street sweeper or something like that. You might have a Ph.D., but the only thing we're going to let you do is be a janitor in some school somewhere. That is what it means to be a Christian in China. So I think about what's, what are we? Are we willing? Yes, we're willing to receive the word of God in affliction. We say that. What about inconvenience? Are we willing to take the word of God in inconvenience? To hear the word of God? To receive the word of God in inconvenience? I wrote down a list of a few things here. Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves in technology? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves, even though it may cost us, so that we can be unspotted from the world and live in harmony with our brothers and have real relationships with our sisters? Are we willing to be honest in business, even if it costs us? Are we willing to be honest about our faults and sins when it might cost us our reputation, but bring forth our healing? Are we willing to do that? We're willing to receive the word of God in affliction. What about our reputations? Willing to take the harder path to repair a marriage or a relationship with a brother, a relationship with our father. You know, to... To go the extra mile in our relationships. Are we willing to do that? Are we willing to humble ourselves? To make the apologies? To, to build the relationships that we need to have? Or are we just giving up? You know, I, I've been around a few marriages in my time where, eh, it'll never work. Well, that's, are we willing to receive the word of God in affliction? What about some marriage trouble? Are we willing to crucify this flesh and the sin that I love? You know, in the fourth verse, it says, let's read that there. Brethren beloved, I didn't read that verse. Brethren beloved, fourth verse of the first chapter. The concept of brethren. The Apostle Paul uses the word brethren in this way. Brethren beloved or my brethren 
24 times in First and Second Thessalonians. It's highly condensed. Paul saw himself as a part of a brotherhood. Are we willing to consider ourselves to, you know, that's inconvenient, isn't it? To, let, to, to have myself be blended with my brothers and with my sisters. Am I willing to do that? 24 different times. Let the sandpaper, you know, let, let my brothers, you know, maybe I don't have a conviction on the matter, but my brother does. And because I love my brother, I'm willing to rearrange my life around my brother. To die on the ice, maybe that's easier. I don't know. As I was thinking about this, I wrote something down. I was a little bit inspired by Dale Gish's, uh, you know, that would be glory statement. To die for Christ, like the saints and martyrs, many would be glad to do. But to die to self and live for others measures the metal of the faithful few. I'll read that again. To die for Christ, like the saints and martyrs, many would be glad to do. But to die to self and live for others measures the metal of the faithful few. That's point number two. Much affliction. Or maybe much inconvenience. The third effect. The third effect of receiving the gospel. Receiving the word. Is that we become reverberators and multipliers. And that's taken out of the seventh and eighth verses. So that you were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God is spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. The word of God sounded forth. It reverberated. It, it you know, it's, we can think of an echo. It, it was bouncing. It was, it, was a, it was like a musical instrument. And it was multiplying itself. And I didn't even have to say anything after this. I read a, a J. Vernon McGee in his commentary on this. He said he's traveled all over the United States. He said he's found some many, many exemplary individuals. Men of God that he really realized were just on another level. But he said he never found a church that way. That was a pretty heavy, a heavy thing to say. An exemplary church. But that's what Apostle Paul said about the Thessalonians. And the Thessalonians had not been Christians very long. That's the amazing thing about this. This is a new church. Hard if Paul hadn't spent much time here. It's worth your time just to study that out. So the word of God reverberated. It, it bounced out of, uh, from one point to the other. In, in uh, John uh, Payton's story there in, uh, on the South Sea Islands, it's worth your time. Is it uh, 40 years on the South Sea Islands? Something like that. 20, 20 years. Very interesting book. He speaks about the, how miserable their life was. You know, they lived in just a terrible place. And he's typically, I don't know for whatever reason, because of some supply ships or whatever, he would spend most of his life evangelizing the outer perimeters of these islands that he was on. The inland was hard to reach, and a lot of times it was very dangerous because the tribes or the villages up in there were usually very protective, and they didn't want anybody up there. And one of the island chiefs on the shoreline, they were so happy. They finally, you know, they, could, they didn't have to carry their possessions with them everywhere they went like they did before, because they were Christians now, and, and they didn't, you know, they used to, you had to carry everything with you because it would be stolen. 
you know, just in, even in your own village, it was just a terrible place to live. And, and all the murder, and you, know, had, you never knew, you had to lay down with you know, a spear across your chest just in case someone would try to, try to kill you. It was just a terrible place to live. And so they were very grateful for the gospel. You know, we, we should be more grateful. I don't think we realize, and we've kind of grown up with the gospel, and we don't realize how bad it would be. If we were just left to hate one another and envy one another and kill one another and, and, and steal from one another and speak bad about one another all the time, we wouldn't, we'd just have never experienced that because we've grown up in a Christian environment and Christian homes. This, this uh, uh, perimeter chief, one on, on the shoreline, was so happy, and he knew there was a chief up, on the, up in the inland that needed to hear the gospel because it was terrible up there. And without telling Peyton, he decided to go. So he sent a message up there, and he says, I'm coming, I want to tell you about Jehovah. And the inland chief said, no, no, don't come. No, I want to come anyway. If you come, I'll kill you. I'm coming. So he gathered up his, his men, and they had just been warriors. You know, they, they, had, they had spears, and you know, they, they knew how to kill people. They had fought a lot of wars in their time. He took these men unarmed up the hill up to this inland chief. And of course, they got to the border of the inland chief's land, and the, and the, and the chief was standing there. You can't come. I don't want to hear about Jehovah. We're coming anyway. I'll kill you. We're coming. So these unarmed men just started marching. And the, and the inland tribe came out with their spears, and, and they started throwing spears. And of course, this is where the... It, it, it looks like America. I don't know what else to call it. These men just started marching, and they just throw the spears aside, and they'd catch them and throw them on the ground, and they just kept going. Got all the way to the center of the village, and they said, that was a miracle. You know, a few years ago, if you'd have done what you did to us, we'd have taken them spears and turned around and killed you. But we didn't do that. And besides that, you couldn't kill us with your spears. And so now you've seen a miracle, now you have to listen to us. And they stood in the center of the, of the circle, and they preached the gospel and got this, this tribe converted. And, and, of course, Peyton's word on that was, I didn't have to do a thing. I didn't, he wasn't even involved. But because they were so excited about the word of God, and that's what it says here, that, that we need not speak anything, Paul says here, about the Thessalonians. It's, it's being done. The word of God is going forth from you. And that is one of the effects of receiving the word, is the word goes forth from us. It goes forth. And that is, the, that is the beautiful thing. There's a statistic. You know, statistics are just statistics. But there is a statistic that I found out is 100% true. 100% true. And that is this. If your parents did not have children, neither will you. Think about that for just a minute. If your parents did not have children, neither will you. So one of the evidences of life is multiplication. You know, you can take a mineral, there are certain kinds of minerals, you pour water on them, and they'll grow. You know, they kind of, they do their little thing, and they'll even move around a little bit. But they're not alive. So if you look up the definition of life, it's the ability to propagate itself. So true life propagates itself. So one of the evidences that you receive the word of God is that you're propagating the gospel. Point number three. So point number four is they turn to God from idols. That's the ninth verse. 
They turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. They turned to God. So it's interesting the order. I don't know, you don't want to make a big deal of order, but they turned to God from idols. And I would just like you to notice that because when we turn to God, we've turned our back on the world. You know, as soon as we turn to God, behind us is the world and in front of us is God. So we can turn away from idols, but maybe to nothing. You know, people are doing that all, all the time. They, they realize the idols are stupid. In fact, in Athens, they, a lot of people were intelligent enough and, and, and educated enough and thoughtful enough that they realize these, these idols and these gods that we've been worshiping are not real. But they didn't turn around and say, well, where's the true God? They just decided the gods aren't real. That was the, we're talking 2,000 years or even 3,000 years ago. There were people out there that had come to the conclusion that the gods are not real, but they didn't turn to the true and living God. So what do we do when we turn to God? We turn away from the world. The word, the word came with power. And that's an, I, that's an interesting uh, uh, verse there. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. Now you just take that verse there sometime and just, just read that and then go get a book on the Hebrides revival. And they don't bring tears to your eyes to see what happens when God's spirit moves in that way. You've got a hard heart is all I've got to say. It is amazing when apparently that's what happened here. They heard something. You know, it wasn't Paul's eloquence, and it wasn't, he wasn't even there very long, but tremendous things happened. And I would just say this, and it's not really a part of the message. Let's seek for the Holy Spirit to come down. You know, it's not going to happen all the time. It's not going to happen every day. Most every revival I've ever heard of, eventually it fades away and leaves behind it. A church that... that the Holy Ghost is still there. You know, the Holy Ghost leaves, leaves behind the gifts. You know, he, you know, captivity captive, gives gifts to men. And those gifts are for the upbuilding and the edifying of the church. You know, it's apostles and elders and, and teachers and evangelists. And these are what's left behind. But, of course, the revival does fade. It always has. But that's all right. Because there's just a walking in faith that God has called the Christian to do. We could talk about that a little bit more, but we won't. So we turn to God from idols. What you worship determines what you become. And those islanders, you know, we could talk about that. You know, they had cannibalism, rape, wife beating, murder, widow strangulation, constant theft, infanticide. Uh, just, it was just a terrible place to live. So why were they that way? It's because of what they worshipped. We become what we worship, what we look up to. You know, you think about, you know, the, 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 the human worship. When we talked about following men, but it was a wrong way to follow men. You think about the, you know, when I was growing up, it was Michael Jackson and Britney Spears, and I don't know who it is today, but, but people become like their idols. And if you want to see, you know, back in my mother's day, it was Elvis Presley, and he committed suicide, and you know, it's... You say, we follow people whose lives are shambles, who are a mess, who don't know how to live life. They don't know how to do marriage. They don't know how to raise children. They don't know how to have relationships. They don't know how to serve God. And we're following the wrong people. 
And that's the reason why God says to worship only him. So why does God call for worship? Is God called for worship because he's egotistical? Because he has an insecurity complex? Absolutely not. God calls for us to worship him because when we look to the highest, we go upward. That's the whole point. He's pulling us out of ourselves from down in the pit that we can go. He calls us to worship him, and as we worship him, we get we climb higher. We can be animals, and that's what they were on these islands there in these South Sea Islands. They were just basically animals, two-legged animals. It was a it was a mess. It's hard to even read how terrible they were living. But once they started worshiping the one true God, you know, they started putting on clothes, they started treating their wife with some respect, they started, they started treating their neighbor with some respect, just worshiping God. It changed them. So that's the reason why we're called to worship God. It changes us. So what is our idols? I was thinking about that. What is our idol? What is our sin? Well, hopefully you don't have a wife beating amongst us and cannibalism, all those terrible things. But what about prayerlessness? Do we have any of that amongst us? What about lack of private devotion? Do we only only read the Bible in church? How often do we miss opportunities to witness to our neighbors? May we avoid opportunities. What about envying our brother or sister? What about loving the world? Covetousness and greed. Admiring the world. Probably none of us can say that we love God as he deserves to be loved. That we obey God as he deserves to be obeyed. With all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our strength. What about just wasting time that God has given to us? Dawdling it away on the internet or some trivial pursuits that does us no good, it does our neighbors no good, does our families no good, does the kingdom of God no good. Is those sins? What about quarreling? Husbands and wives arguing and bickering. Siblings arguing and bickering. A lack of submission. It's a command to submit one to another. So is it a cement sin not to? You know, a lack of love. You know, sometimes when I've had to do counseling, marriage counseling, you know, I have to you know, hold before them, husbands, you're a Christian, right? Yeah. You believe the Bible is true, right? Yeah. You believe you're supposed to obey the Bible. Yeah. Well, it says right here to love your wife. Are you doing that? No. Or is that wrong? Yeah. Is it a sin? Yeah. Sometimes we just have to come to that place. We just have to say, am I willing to line my life up with the Word of God? So are we loving it? Are we respecting, honoring, reverencing our husbands the way the Bible says? Yeah, but you don't know my husband. You don't know my husband. Lack of love for the brothers in the church. Foolish talk and gossip. Gluttony and self-indulgence. Vanity, pride. Does our lives reflect that we are submitting, worshiping the one true God? Now, we... Have we worshipped God in such a way, turned to God from idols in such a way that we are being pulled away from all those Mennonite sins? You know, you think about it, you know, I think about the, the, the uh, 
parable of the sower and the seed, he says the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Well, that's, you know, we don't, we don't have cannibalism amongst us. We don't even have alcoholism amongst us. You know, we don't smoke, drink, play cards, and dance. We don't do all those, you know, watch movies and all those things. But what about the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches? And that's what God is calling us to, is to turn to Him. And, our care, and, these, and these things of life will become strangely dim. We will not be attracted. And you know, we can say, well, love not the world, brother. Love not the world, sister. That would be good. That's a command. Apostle John says so. But really the call is look to God. Worship Him and praise Him and look to Him and, and, and just admire Him. That's what worship means is to attribute worth to Him and then everything else is in line with that. Now all of a sudden our businesses and our, you know, our jobs and our trucks and our car and our house and all those things is now, now in perspective. Now we've got it in perspective and we worship God. The way we should. Eyes to God and our back to the world. So the gospel came with power to change Paul. That's the reason why he was willing to do what he did. The gospel came with power to change the Thessalonians. And I will tell you, it came with power to change the South Sea Islanders in the days of John Payton. And I would like to promise you that it can change your life too, and my life. But it has to be received, and part of the title of this message was to receive the word. And I would like you to notice here that in the ninth verse, it has the word entering, ninth verse, first chapter. For they themselves, these others, when they see you, they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you. And then the fourth verse, first, uh, fourth chapter, first verse, I think that's right. Must be the second verse here. I'm not getting my eyes on it now. 2-1. I'm sorry, I thought it was 4-1. Yes, for yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. So there's two places it speaks about entering. Entering in. And that word there has to do with welcoming. So, when Apostle Paul entered into Thessalonica, he was welcomed. That entering into you is that uh, we were welcomed by you, the New Translations would say. So, there was, a, there was a willingness to hear Paul speak. Why? I don't know. Why were they, you know, God often prepares hearts. You know, there's a, there's a sense, you know, there's a, you know, uh, Jesus uh, told the disciples, you know, there's some that you're just going to have to just, you know, just kick the dust of your feet off because they're just not going to hear it. But others, it seems, they're, they're open. You know, let, let, what do you have to say? I want to know. And somehow or another here in Thessalonica, they were open. So the first step. So here we have, we're to receive the word because the word of God will change us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Word of God will change your life? I hope you do, because it will. That's right. But we have to be open, first of all, to receive it. And so it begins with receptivity. We have to be willing to listen. And then we have to give some mental assent. We have to say, yep, I believe he might be speaking some truth here. You know, the, the Bereans, they search the Scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Hmm, you know, it sounds like it might be true. 
Then uh, on Mars Hill, the, uh, they told the Apostle Paul, we'll, we'll hear you again on this matter. There was this idea that maybe, maybe. And so maybe what I preach today, maybe some of you said, I, maybe it's true. I'd like to challenge you. Search the scriptures is what I've said true. But, you know, mental assent is not enough. You know, just, I think that's one of the problems with the health and wealth gospel. It's the problem with modern evangelical Christianity is that we just give mental assent. We say, yep, I think the Bible's true. I even believe the Bible's true. But nothing really ever changes. Because there's a difference between a believer and a follower. We're not just believers. We are disciples. A disciple is a follower. And that's what one of my main points I wanted to make about the being followers of of churches and of men and of Christ is that we are disciples. And, and part of church's job is to be disciplers. So, so to follow God is to be a disciple, to let the word of God have its effect. One of the more profound stories I heard on this was David Wagler. He's a writer. He wrote several books. He's an Amishman up in, up in Ontario, Canada. He was, a, he was actually an uncle to Elmo Stoll, and that's how I knew the story. He was walking down the road one day there in Ontario, and there was a tour bus came by that was touring the Amish. Uh, they do in some areas. And so the bus pulled up alongside David Wagner. David Wagner, I met him only once, and he's a, he was the perfect person to stop. Pulled up alongside, the, and they asked him, come on in, come on, come on in the bus. And of course, he was Amish, you know, obviously Amish. And uh, the bus driver, the tour guide, he said... Uh, and, you know, on public speaker, he said, uh, would you be able to answer what makes the Amish different? What makes the Amish different? So David thought about it for just a little moment, and he said, well, he said, how many of you believe that television is good for you? Not a hand went up. Well, he said, how many of you believe that really you'd be better off not to have a television? Every hand on the bus went up. David said, well, that's the difference between the Amish and everybody else. We believe, and then we put it into practice. Now, we can, you know, pick on the Amish all day long, but that's an important point. You know, so we believe the Bible says to love our wife. We believe the Bible says we shouldn't lay up our treasures in heaven. And then we put it into practice. We just begin to live it. You know, we believe that, you know, I, I know many, many people, in fact, my own customers, We'll say they'd be better off to have never got Facebook, but they're not about to give it up. And the difference between those who let the, the receive the word of God is that they say, well, then I'll give it up because it's not good for me. It's not taking me where I want to go. So we agree that the Bible says what it says. Are we willing to do it? Our lives, it's been said many a time, our lives our message, preaching what we actually, actually believe, what we actually believe. So I'll bring this close home. You know, we can pick on the Amish. We can pick on the people of Facebook. But, you know, the Bible says that husbands should love their wives and wives should reverence their husband. Children should honor their parents. We should not lay up treasures in heaven. And we should seek forgiveness. And we should seek to reconcile. So, how practical are we when it comes to receiving the Word of God into our lives? Not just to give a mental assent to, but actually to say, hmm, tomorrow morning, 
I heard what Clint said, and my brother has the ought against me, or I have ought against a brother. I'm going to make a phone call. I'm going to make a stop. Do we, do we arrange our lives, rearrange our lives around the Word of God? Do we, do we take it as it is? Some of the things that we could say is, I can't. I can't do that. It doesn't make any sense. You know, why would I, why would I not lay up treasures of heaven? Who's going to take care of me in old age if I don't? I can't forgive my dad. He's did this to me. I can't love my wife. Have you seen my wife? You know, I can't respect my husband. He's not even respected. I don't think even the men respect him. I'm betraying some marriage counseling there. You don't understand. If you understood, you wouldn't be asking me to obey this command. You know, sometimes as counselors, sometimes we just have to say, well, it's not me saying it. It's the Bible saying it. So what I, what I would challenge us as we receive the word, you know, we're going to have to let the word of God have its effect and actually change us. We're going to have to get to the point where we, even if we're not there, you know, you name, you name the sin you're in, you name the, the thing that's not lined up in your life right, you can say, I'm not there. But I know it's in the Bible. I know I'm a Christian. And I know that I need to be there. And I plan to get there. And I'm going to pray to God that He'll give me the strength to go there. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, I will go where God wants me to go because the way of the cross is a way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. It is a path. It is a path of discipleship. And I am going to go there. We can make all kinds of excuses. You know, I've been around people who say, well, but that I'm not going to do. At that juncture, at that turn, whatever that thing is in your life, or I can't, or I won't, that is where you veered off the path. Until you get back to the point where you say, I receive the word, and I will let it change my heart, I will let it change my life, I will let it change my direction, I will let it change my actions. Until then, don't ask God for very much more. Usually we have to take that, we have to, you know, God usually don't take us to the next step until we've taken the one he's taken us to. You know, we can, we're, we're going to have to take the step that he's taken, he's taken us to. So saving faith is mental assent, yes, but it's also receiving and welcoming it, and it's also total surrender. We hear the gospel, agree it's true, and cast yourself upon it in a life of yieldedness. And I'll read two verses and I'll be done. As many as received him, and they received the word of God, the Thessalonians received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. In 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it's open in my Bible, I'll just read it from my notes. When ye received the word of God, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh in you that believe. So the word of God isn't just a something we hear. It's not just blank page, uh, words on a page. It's kind of a law. It's not just words that, that, that uh, you know, well, okay, I see it says that, so I guess I'll line my life up with it. But it's actually words, when they are received, actually begin a miraculous, spirit-filled 
from outside of ourselves work inside of us that changes our life. But we must first receive it. We must first welcome it. We must first believe it. And then the power begins. And it's an effectually. That means that it's effective. It actually does something. It isn't something that just, it's just, well, what do you believe? But rather, whoo, the word of God's working in that man. There's something changed. So I would just like to say at the end, have you received the word of God? Is it effectually working in you? And I put myself in that question. You know, it's not hard. Or at least it's not complicated. It is hard. But really all we have to do is surrender. All we have to do is yield. All we have to do is welcome. All we have to do is believe. And I know those are all big things, especially, you know, I was talking to a situation recently where there was a path of surrender, of yieldedness to the Word of God placed before this person. And that person was afraid of what the consequences would be. You know, sometimes, you know, that ice looks easier than to submit my life to someone that I don't trust or to forgive someone and not sure what that would mean and what that would look like. But that's all God is asking. You know, it's, it's, a, beautiful, it's a beautiful way. You know, my, my wife's testimony is that when she gave her heart to God in a brand new and a full and a clear way, that all of a sudden, everyone was nice to her. All of a sudden, her family was, was a good family to be a part of. You know, we didn't change, but her heart did. You know, the way of the cross is not, it's not hard in the sense of, you know, drudgery and pain. It's actually breaking out into the sunlight. It's actually, you know, as we narrow our life down to the Word of God, it's, you know, as the, as the old saying goes, it's bigger on the inside than it looks from the outside. It's, it, it looks like we're narrower in our life. But in reality, we're opening it up to bright sunshine and green pastures. So, you know, that's a beautiful picture. We all want to receive that Word. But what's the alternative? You know, those that don't receive the word, they don't have God. They're without God. And of course, their end is destruction. And it begins usually in this life. So the call today is, as you read the word, as you hear the word, are we willing to receive it and let it effectually work in us? Or are we just going to read the Word? And now we've done our little thing for the day. Now we've done our time with God. Are we going to line ourselves up? You know, I think of just a simple, 1 Corinthians 13. How many times, how many church troubles, and how many marriages, and how many relationships would have been resolved many, many years ago if we take 1 Corinthians 13 and say, okay, I'm going to line my life up with 1 Corinthians 13, the charity chapter. So God bless us.